And so let's hear God's word. 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 through 11. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not want to join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that those judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And as we have been working through the book of 1 Peter, we have been learning what it means to live where life is hard. We've explored what it means to be foreigners by faith, to be the kind of people who are neither assimilating with the culture, but also not isolating from the culture. Here we are, foreigners by faith, somewhere in this middle ground. We've discovered the importance of abstaining, Peter says, from sinful lusts on the one hand, and also the importance of living honorably among those who do not yet believe in Jesus. Why? Because God tells us that some of those people will see the way that we live and they will be converted. They also will receive God's grace and they will stand with us one day and glorify God. We have wrestled. We have wrestled, some of us more than others, with the commands to submit to legitimate authority. Perhaps we have even begun to accept that suffering for doing good is the calling of every Christian, as Peter says. And we have seen the Lord Jesus again and again in this book, in his suffering. He is our perfect example in suffering. And now... Peter is going to sum up everything that he has said to us in these last two chapters. Everything comes to this conclusion with these words. Verse number one. Therefore, that's how we know he's summing up and drawing the things that he has said to their conclusion. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves also with the same understanding. 
because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin. Suffering is inevitable for followers of Jesus. I hope that is not news to you. We've seen this again and again in 1 Peter. As sure as Jesus suffered, his followers should expect to suffer. And Peter exhorts us to prepare for that suffering. Do you see that there in verse 1? He says, arm yourselves, equip yourselves, prepare for suffering. Instead of figuring out how we can avoid suffering, we should get ready for it. Kids, I wonder which you would prefer, to get ready for a visit to grandma's house or to get ready for a visit to the dentist? This is not hard, is it? No one wants to get ready for a visit to the dentist. Why? Well, because it might hurt. At minimum, it's probably going to be uncomfortable. But that's exactly what Peter says to us here in verse 1. He says, prepare yourselves for suffering. Get ready for suffering. Arm yourselves, equip yourselves for suffering. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, you also get ready for it. How? By thinking about suffering the way that Jesus did. Do you see that there in the text? Arm yourselves also with the same understanding. How did Jesus think about suffering? Well, there's a wonderful prophetic text in Isaiah chapter 50. And it describes the Messiah as one who will set his face like a flint to go to suffering. What an interesting metaphor Isaiah uses. What is a flint for? You you use a flint when you are trying to start a fire, right? You're going to smash something against the flint and try to get a spark so that you can light your kindling and, and have a campfire. Isaiah says, Jesus sets his face. The Messiah is going to be that one who sets his face like a flint to go towards suffering. He knows suffering is coming for him. And yet, he sets his face to go forward towards it. We read this again in Luke 9. When the days drew near, he, Jesus, set his face to go towards Jerusalem. In the Garden of Gethsemane, how was Jesus thinking about his suffering? Not my will, but your will be done. And then in Hebrews chapter 12, what a beautiful text. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising 
the shame. Do you see how much Jesus loves you? This is how Jesus thought about suffering. He was ready for it. He set his face for it. He moved towards Jerusalem where he knew that he must suffer and be killed. Since suffering is inevitable, we should prepare for it by thinking like Jesus. We should expect to suffer. We should anticipate suffering. And we should submit to suffering for doing good. If this is God's will, and Peter says, it is. And we should endure suffering like Jesus. Mindful that there is a glorious victory on the other side of our suffering. How will I know if I am thinking like Jesus about suffering? Good question. You will know you are thinking like Jesus about your suffering when you are willing to leave your sinful past behind. Look right in the middle of verse number one. Arm yourselves also with the same understanding because... The one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin. In order to live the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for God's will. For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on in unrestrained behavior. Here is your choice. Assimilate culture's values and beliefs and practices and behaviors. Do what the Gentiles do. When Peter uses that term, he means unbelievers, those who are not part of God's people. Assimilate. Do what they do. Or... Or, pursue a life of obedience to God's will. Take the path of least resistance. Go with the flow. Do what everyone else is doing. Be accepted because you're acting like the world around you. Or, leave your sinful past behind and face slander and rejection because you're different, because you're choosing to follow Jesus. I wonder if some of the parents in the room said this this morning. That's enough. Any takers on that one? That's enough. I have heard enough. I have seen enough. That is enough. Peter says something like that right here in verse number three. Do you see it? For there has already been enough time doing what the Gentiles choose to do. 
Peter says, I have seen enough. You have seen enough. You've been involved in enough. Enough already. Enough time has been wasted on sin. Have you ever thought about how much time you spend sinning? This was a very sobering thought for me this week. I'm not talking about time that you spend doing something that's fairly trivial or meaningless when you could be doing something else. I will leave that for the Spirit of God and people around you to help you discern whether your time spent doing something trivial or meaningless needs to be repented of. But let me ask you about the time that you just spent sinning this week. Like, just blatantly, outright sinning. How much time did you spend arguing with your spouse? How much time did you spend manipulating circumstances in order to get your way? How much time did you spend lusting? How much time did you spend being consumed with your anger? How much time did you spend insisting that you're right, refusing to be teachable? How much time did you spend coveting? I'm reading a book on coveting. Boy, that is a knife. How much time did I spend coveting this week? How much time did you spend worrying? Think about it. And then agree with God's word. I have wasted enough time with sin. It's cost me enough time. I want to leave that particular sin, whatever it is, behind. I want to get in the car, turn on the engine, and drive away from that sin. I want to leave that in my past. Maybe you have put some sin in the rear view mirror. And you have seen the surprise on your friend's face when you say no to sin. And maybe you've heard them say something, uh, some kind of a joke, and, and you feel the weightiness of that decision of saying no to sin. Come on, life is so short. You just need to get out and live a little. Anybody heard that? Maybe you have said that to a Christian this week. The shortness of life does not invalidate the warnings of the gospel. Nor does it constrain its promises. Look at verse 4. They are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living. And they slander you. 
So we go from some kind of surprise, some kind of shock, I can't believe you wouldn't join us in this, can't believe you wouldn't go along with this, come on, you just need to live a little bit. Life's so short, they, they go from surprise to slander, demeaning, rejecting, pushing you away, marginalizing you, setting you aside, overlooking you, passing over you, not interested in being with you anymore. They are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living, and they slander you. They will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead, so that although they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, they might live in the spirit according to what according to God's standards. Those who slander, those who poke fun at Christians, those who reject the gospel of Jesus, those who refuse to believe the good news of the gospel, you will give an account to God. Hebrews 9 says, it is appointed for man to die once. And after this, the judgment. See, the shortness of your life does not invalidate the warnings of the gospel. You will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. Shortness of life does not invalidate the warnings of the gospel. But listen, the shortness of life also does not confine the promises of the gospel. Do you see that there? It's a little cryptic, I think. It's in verse number 6. For this reason, the gospel was preached to those who are now dead. What is Peter saying here? Well, he's talking to those who are hearing these promises of, of glory to come, suffering now and glory to come. And they're wondering, what about those who have died? What about those who have died in faith, trusting in Jesus, but now they're dead? Peter says, don't you worry about them. The promises of the gospel extend beyond the brevity of your life. God's promises last beyond your last breath. You may be slandered now. You may be slandered now, but God has the last word on you, child of God. And it's his word that matters most. Can we agree to that? It is God's word that matters the most. So leave your past behind and look forward to glory. Look at verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. 
When, when Peter says the end of all things is near, we should not hear this like some kind of a doomsday prophet freaking out, predicting some sort of date when the world is going to come to an end. This is not what Peter is saying. He is not at all concerned about a point in time. He is describing a period of time. He's not describing the screeching of brakes before a horrible crash at the end of the world. He is describing the last mile of a long road trip that ultimately ends at the anticipated destination. Friends, we live in that last mile of God's redemptive plan. The life, the death, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, they are in our rearview mirror. They're in the past. We are in the last mile. And so we have the privilege of looking forward to glory, anticipating what is to come, recognizing that though we are in the last mile, and though this last mile seems like it's going to last forever, it's not, Peter says, the end of all things is near. You're in the last mile. And so, since we find ourselves near the end of this redemptive plan that God set in motion, and God ordained, and God purposed is, and God sent the Son into, if, if we are in this last mile, then how you spend your time matters. What does faithfulness to Jesus look like for those of us living in the last mile? Peter tells us, did you see it there in the text? The end of all things is near. And then what? Therefore. Therefore. Notice what he says. This is what faithfulness to Jesus looks like for those living in the last mile. We should be alert and sober-minded so we can pray. Prayer is hard, isn't it? Perhaps one of the hardest spiritual disciplines. One reason why prayer is hard for me, I am an internal processor. And so my mind is often a jumble of untamed thoughts. And maybe you're like that as well. Or, or maybe for you, it's not so much your thoughts, maybe it is your emotions. And your heart is like a jungle of wild emotions. It's hard to be quiet in the presence of God when our mind is racing and our heart is restless. What if instead of allowing our emotions to drag us around, we ask the Holy Spirit to make us alert and sober-minded? 
What if instead of giving my own thoughts, my own plans, my own ideas, my own worries and concerns, so much attention in my head, I ask the Holy Spirit to help me think clearly and to have some self-control related to my emotions and to be mindful of His work in the world and in my life. How would this change our prayers? If the end of all things is near, then faithfulness to Jesus means being alert and sober-minded so that we can pray. Since we're in the last mile, then we also need to love one another. Peter says we ought to love one another. Did you see it in the text? Above all. Above all. This isn't the first time he has exhorted us this way. When he introduced us as brothers and sisters... Just a couple of chapters back, he taught us that we need to have genuine, intense love for one another. Now here he tells us we need to maintain that kind of love constantly. I think the ESV version says earnestly. Is that correct? Neither of these two translations are exactly precise. And I think there's an illustration that works a little better. And so I'll offer it this way, and then you can discern what you think is best. The word here for constantly, or if you're in the ESV, earnestly, is a word that means stretched or covered. I think about fitted sheets. Some of the fitted sheets in our home have helpful little tags on them so that you know this is the top or the bottom or the side. You know what I'm talking about? Some of the fitted sheets in our home do not have this. Sometimes when I am changing the sheets and I am struggling with one bed in particular, I realize this sheet ought to stretch over this bed and it is not stretching. It is not covering the bed. And it doesn't matter how many times I put the sheets on there, I'm still left with this struggle of the sheet that is turned the wrong way and does not stretch. It does not cover. I have to turn it, right? Some of you are like, duh. I have to turn this sheet and then it will fit. It will stretch over the bed and be nice and tight. Love one another is the central command of the gospel. This means that we don't trade insults like volleyball teams trade kills. This means that we choose not to act out our hurt feelings. Means that we choose to get even by asking God to bless the person who has hurt us. Loving one another means patient forbearance that does not allow the wrongs that are done to you to ferment into bitterness or to blow up into revenge. 
Friends, we have been so loved by God in Jesus Christ. Haven't we? We can stretch the love of Jesus in our relationships. I wonder if you could choose to ignore some hurtful word that was spoken to you. I wonder if you could fight to believe the best about a person, even though you are really wondering whether it's safe to believe the best. I wonder if you could recognize that that other person may be suffering in a way that you might not yet understand. I wonder if you could put some accusation made against you in the rear view mirror and drive away. I wonder if you could forgive without being asked for forgiveness. If the end of all things is near, then we need to love one another constantly. I love how these exhortations contrast with the sinful behaviors that we are supposed to leave behind. Notice these contrasts between the first portion of our text and the ending of our text. Instead of drunkenness, we should be alert and sober-minded. Instead of lawless idolatry, we should produce the fruit of the Holy Spirit. There is no law against love. Instead of making our homes places where sin is celebrated, we ought to open our homes to our brothers and sisters, welcome them to come in and to eat and to drink and to celebrate God's goodness and provision. We should do that without grumbling. Instead of slandering, we should lovingly serve one another with God's gracious gifts. Look at verse 9. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Just as each one has received a gift, use it. Use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him Let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides. So that, so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. Don't you love the simplicity of Peter's teaching on spiritual gifts? This is not all that the scripture has to say to us about scripture about spiritual gifts. But this is what Peter thinks those who live where life is hard, this is what he thinks we need first and most. You have a gift. Child of God, you have a gift. Use it to serve others. 
Peter is not worried that a Christian might miss his or her calling because they don't see their gift listed, classified here in the list of spiritual gifts. Peter's not concerned about that. If you're gifted with words, use those words to teach and encourage and edify and build up others in biblical ways. If you're committed to serving, don't try to serve in your own strength. Serve in all of the good strength that God gives. Be a good steward. Whatever you have received from God, steward it. Don't hoard it. It doesn't belong to you. It's a gift given to you to be used for the good of others. Primarily this church. It's totally appropriate and normal to want to know what spiritual gift God has given you. It's even biblical to ask the Holy Spirit to give you greater expressions of His good gifts. Totally biblical. But I doubt you will discover whatever gift God has given you through introspection. I think you will discover it as you do what Peter says. As you commit to being a faithful steward of what God has given you. Whatever gift of God's varied grace. What a beautiful phrase. You see that? Circle that in your Bible if you're into that. Whatever gift of God's varied grace you've been given. Steward it and use it to serve others. Whatever gift you have. We need it. We need it. Whatever gift God has given you, the church needs it. The end of all things is near, then faithfulness to Jesus means being a good steward of God's grace. So leave your past behind. Look forward to glory. And above all, Love. During the third week of December in 1996, a strong blizzard was forecasted for the upper Midwest. And when the blizzard hit here in Fargo midweek, I was nervous. See, Lois and I were planning to be married on the 21st of December. And I was concerned that the blizzard might prevent me from making it to the wedding. We had waited five years to be married. The end was near. We were in the last mile. But it wasn't looking good. And so my mom and two sisters hurriedly packed up the minivan, got ourselves into it, and began to drive south on Interstate 29 for Lawrence, Kansas. The roads were terrible. Terrible. It's totally unsafe. But it was the last mile. 
And I really wanted to be at my own wedding. Several hours south on I-29, we left the snow and the wind and the cold behind us. And in a few days, Lois and I stood together and we made vows before God and our family and friends. It was a special day that I'll never forget. What does the end of all things look like for followers of Jesus? What is the end? Verse 11. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Suffering is inevitable, but so is glory, child of God. Leave your past behind. Let the sins that have wasted so much time, let them fade from view in your rearview mirror. Look forward to glory. Jesus will return and make all things new. And welcome us into a glorious eternal kingdom. And since you live in this last mile, then above all, love. Love one another. Let's pray. Good Father, we are grateful to have your word. We are humbled that you have preserved it for us, that you have given us freedoms to gather together in this way, that you have sent your Holy Spirit to be here among us, to teach us and instruct us, correct us, convict us, comfort and encourage us. Please continue to do these things in our hearts as we continue in this time of worship together. Father, we pray for a person who came here this morning who has never trusted in Jesus. They are not a Christian. They are not enjoying your grace. And they know that they don't have a relationship with you. Good Father, we ask that your spirit would invade their heart and grant them life. Stir up inside of them repentance and faith so that they respond by repenting and believing the gospel. Perhaps they thought they were just coming out to church today. And yet your Holy Spirit is doing something inside of them right now. Oh great God, please continue to do the work of saving sinners for their good and your glory. We ask this for the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.